You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. The biomechanical approach to heart disease. What is it and how might it change our approach to common cardiovascular diseases? With me today is Dr. Joe Gorman, Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and co-director of the Gorman Cardiovascular Research Group. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Gorman. Thanks for inviting me. Can we start by telling us what is the biomechanical approach and how does it differ from the more traditional approach used by most investigative groups? Our group is interested in, you know, structural heart disease, basically heart failure and valvular heart disease. And a lot of groups have approached the treatment of particularly heart failure in a way that's pretty reductive. They try to look at it at a genetic level or biochemical level. But when you break that particular disease process down that far, you have trouble translating your findings back to a clinical treatment that actually impacts the patient. You can decipher a gene that is affects heart failure or a biochemical process that you know is associated with the pathogenesis of heart failure. It's been shown that it, it's hard to really take those findings and, and impact on really the treatment of patients with heart failure. No real practical uh, therapeutic application, at least yet. Right. So basically what we, we try to do is to kind of assess the problem at an organ level, you know, looking at the whole heart and, you know, how can we intervene or how can we set up experiments that allow us to understand the pathogenesis of a disease process at that level and then intervene at that level. Because our group is, we're physicians, we're surgeons, but we're, most of us are engineers. So we have kind of a mechanical bent to our background. And, you know, we feel that understanding things at a whole organ level is valuable in that it allows us to deal with things we understand more completely than the biochemical and the genetic makeup of a, or mechanisms of a disease. It's kind of like some investigators, their work can be likened to taking a plane apart to try to figure out how it works, and you find out a lot of stuff, but then sometimes it's kind of hard to put it back together and get a plane that works again. Very interesting, and it, it does sound like for this type of approach, either engineering or, or physics uh, is an important part of the background. Is that the case? That is the case. And like I said, almost all of our members have not only a medical background, but an engineering background. And are there particular heart diseases that you're looking at with this approach? Our group has basically three big overarching areas of interest and, and many sub-interests under those big headings. And the three major interests are the pathogenesis and treatment of heart failure, valvular heart disease, and then cardiovascular imaging. And to have an approach like this, are standard diagnostic tools adequate, or do we need to look at certain other imaging techniques or other techniques to understand this biomechanical approach? Yeah, I think all of our research is problem-based. I mean, we start out with an important clinical problem or important clinical disease that we feel doesn't have a satisfactory treatment in our eyes, and then try to apply our engineering and medical and surgical skills to developing novel processes for treating those diseases. And heart failure is, is probably prime on the list. And the, the type of heart failure that we're really interested in is the type of heart failure that affects millions of people throughout the world, and that's post-infarction heart failure, 
patients who have their heart attack and don't have heart failure initially, but the infarction causes a remodeling stimulus on the rest of the ventricle and over time, months or years, causes them to go into heart failure and ultimately die. And right now we're, as physicians and certainly as surgeons, we're, we're very bad at treating patients once they have developed heart failure. There's a whole bunch of medications that kind of palliate it and then we have surgeons that, you know, being kind of impatient by personality, have decided that, you know, maybe there's something we can do surgically. And over the past five or six years, many aggressive operations to treat heart failure by reestablishing more normal left ventricular geometry have been proposed and really have met with very limited success. So our group has become very pessimistic that you can really ever treat post-infarction heart failure once it's established. And we really think that you have to jump on the disease early and prevent it after an infarction. And that's a nice concept, but it's fraught with a lot of difficulties. And a lot of difficulties can be imaging problems because, or cardiovascular imaging problems, because you have to identify patients. Not everybody has a heart attack ultimately goes into heart failure. So you have to have realistic or reliable imaging techniques and ways to assess those imaging techniques that tell you who's going to go on to remodel and go into heart failure after a heart attack so you can, you can intervene early. Sounds like ultrasound would be a, a very good way to try to assess that. Do we have the tools to assess who might be at risk for going to heart failure? Yeah, I think we're on the cutting edge of that right now. And in our laboratory, we do a lot of work with real-time three-dimensional echocardiography and MRI in an attempt to try to identify or come up with criteria using those imaging techniques to identify people that will ultimately go into heart failure. And I imagine that those type of studies are looking at that. It's going to take some time to see if people do go into heart failure and what characteristics that you've come up with. That is very true. But where we also have a very strong advantage in our group is that we have developed several very realistic large animal models of post-infarction ventricular remodeling leading to heart failure. So we can manipulate that model to mimic the human disease very precisely. And then we can bring to bear some of our imaging technology onto those models, which, while not perfect, gives us an even stronger educated guess as to what will work in the human. So, you know, if it was just purely a fishing expedition where you were just imaging people and, and trying to correlate with their ultimate outcome, you may find it difficult. But with the animal models, we can kind of educate ourselves as to what we should be looking at in the humans. And are there specific parameters that you've identified at this point? It gets a little complex, but when you have an infarction, as we all know, that part of the ventricle stops working. But what happens is, is that there's an area of myocardium around the infarct that's normally perfused that we call the border zone. That it, even though it's normally perfused, it undergoes geometrical distortions and dysfunctions due to the kind of black hole of the infarct. The infarct kind of pulls on it as it stretches. And we found that there are certain criteria or geometrical changes within that border zone that you can assess with three-dimensional echocardiography and MRI that give you some predictive value as to who's going to ultimately go into failure or not. There's really kind of a paradigm of how imaging plays against the therapeutic intervention that you want to carry out. Now, you know, what we're doing as surgeons, as surgeons, you know, we can become very aggressive and we can make all kinds of incisions and we can expose the heart and do really whatever we want to it. But when you don't know who's going to go into failure, that kind of limits how aggressive you could really be. So if you have a 
imaging technique that's very precise and tells you that I know 100% that this patient's going to go into failure some six or seven or eight months down the road, then you could potentially be justified in saying, well, you know, we can apply an aggressive surgical procedure to this person because we know he's going to go into heart failure. But we really don't have that at this point. But you can work at it from both ends. If you look at it from the other end now, if you have a minimally invasive procedure or a catheter-based procedure where you don't really inflict that much morbidity, then your ability to predict who's going to go into failure becomes less. So if, you say, if I say I have a catheter-based therapy that's not really going to hurt anybody that's potentially not going into failure, but it's going to help a lot of people that are, are going into failure, then I can get away with a less precise imaging modality. Something that gives me an educated guess may be good enough to apply a less invasive therapy, whereas if you have a more invasive therapy, you need a much more precise predictor on your imaging technique. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Joe Gorman, Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, and we are talking about the biomechanical approach to various types of heart disease. So, Dr. Gorman, with 3D real-time echocardiography and MRI, we're developing some parameters that might have some predictive value. Can you tell us more about these therapeutic approaches for post-MI and perhaps for other heart conditions? Sure. There's a kind of a descriptive term that we like to apply to a lot of what we do, and it's we like to think of ourselves as developing catheter-based techniques for the treatment of structural heart disease. Mm-hmm. And structural heart disease meaning really heart failure, valvular, and valvular heart disease. And we are in the process of developing methodologies that would allow us to deliver certain substances to the heart after a myocardial infarction that would allow us to influence the material properties of the infarct to prevent that stretching and to prevent those ongoing distortions. And we're looking at a a variety of substances from stem cells to other non-living substances or structural type substances that allow us to stiffen the heart and prevent remodeling. We're also looking at catheter-based techniques for repairing or replacing heart valves, particularly, you know, the mitral valve. And and so for the post-MI, through a catheter, you would deliver stem cells or some other substance to prevent that remodeling that would eventually cause heart failure. And mitral valve repair, is is that something that is still in the experimental stage, or are we seeing some of this applied in clinical practice? We're starting to see the first wave of the development process coming to clinical application. Uh, We have been involved in some of the mitral valve repair techniques that are starting to, you know, come to clinical trials. That was the work we kind of did in the early 2000s, and we're starting to see some of those clinical trials now. What we're actively involved with now is not so much repairing the mitral valve, but actually looking at the feasibility of replacing the mitral valve through a catheter-based technology. And we've kind of developed a a development paradigm for that process, too, is where we we take a technique we think we can ultimately get through, uh, you know, placed through a catheter, but early in the development process, we don't set the bar that high. We try to bring the technology along where we develop it to be placed via a small incision without cardiopulmonary bypass. And then once we've achieved that, we start working on catheter-based strategies to place that same device. And we have, we're working currently on two or three technologies to, to replace the mitral valve using that development paradigm. 
eventually could this be applied to other valves, do you feel? Or Right now on the market, there are two technologies that are in clinical trials for the replacement of the aortic valve. The aortic valve, it's probably a little bit easier. The mitral valve presents even more challenges due to its more complex anatomy and its relationship with the left ventricle. The aortic valve is a simpler anatomy. As you know, it's a a three-cusp valve within a cylinder. So, you know, it's amenable to a stented valve replacement technology. With the mitral valve, we're finding that the design has to be a little bit more complicated. Well, I'd like to thank my guest from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, Dr. Joseph Gorman, who has been outlining for us some exciting new techniques from a biomechanical approach that may be used in congestive heart failure, particularly post-MI, and with valvular heart disease and even with coronary artery disease, the most common type of heart disease that plagues us here in the United States. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.